0: Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky today to be joined in person, in the real, uh, Tim Hartcastle, CEO of Instanda How are you?
1: I'm great. And how are you, Alex?
0: Yeah, I'm really good. I'm really good. It's quite interesting to do this. Um, cameras live in person. Um, and this is FinPro Towers, uh, not this office, but it's in the building. So, um, you've really seen behind the veil. Nobody seems to see that ever.
1: <laughs> it's great to see you in your natural habitat. <laughs> you are <laughs> <look> very relaxed. <laughs> thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, well, I'll try and keep it that way. Well, look, obviously we always start in the podcast that, you know, we can make some ill fated attempt to explain in standard, but I think it's always better um, coming from the founder. So Tim walk us through the Instander business and who you are.
1: Well, um, I'm uh, the CEO and co-founder Stander. We started, I guess we came to market about eight years ago, mm-hmm. 2015. Uh, and I was um, brought into insurance uh, through a bit of serendipity. I was headhunted and found a world of uh, opportunity, complexity, diversity. Uh, and so I, I was fortunate to work with a great company when I was brought into insurance. And in Stander was born out of This challenge of how do we address this multifaceted industry in a way that uh, allowed people to innovate at speed uh, at the same time as having a secure, resilient, robust, scalable, modern technology that they could use to run their business on. Mm-hmm. Those two things are not happy bedfellows, or bed people, sorry I should say. Yeah, sure,
0: <laughs> sure. So you still t- talk to this headhunter then, you don't you don't blame them for anything. They,
1: funny enough, they just reached out the other day. Really? So I don't mind giving them a plug, it's Hydra and Struggles.
0: <laughs> Strangely, we... Um,
1: I, I applaud them for their CRM system, the fact that, you know, so many years on, they still knew who I was.
0: Well, that's that's very good of them. Yeah. That, that is their job. I spoke to the uh, the New York partner last week. Yeah. We had lunch together. Yeah. Um, so it's all very friendly in headhunting land. I think people I, think it isn't.
1: I t- particular calibre of Hyderick. Stuggles people, they, you could drop them into a, uh, you know, a, a conflict of any description. They're great diplomacy yeah. ambassadors, um, so they, they did a great job on persuading me to join insurance. Yeah, they're very good and people. I have no regrets. Yeah, <laughs> they're very good people.
0: I can't plug them too hard because uh, no. they're, they're allegedly a competitor. But we uh, we were playing very nice in New York. So, um, and walk us through kind of where you are today because we were just talking off air mm. about founders. And I Mm -hmm. thought, let's pick that straight up, because I thought that was interesting. You know, you had a very successful career um, before insurance and in insurance, could have taken that comfortable CIO money till retirement. Why didn't you? Um, And why did you start to embark on this journey? Presumably because there's a problem to solve, but I suppose, what do you think about kind of founders nature and, and what makes them different? Because you're choosing that challenging path when there are very good, very exciting, very comfortable jobs in the sugar market.
1: Well, that's a really good point and an observation. I think if I, for me personally, if I, if I trace some threads back to, you know, through my young adult period, mm-hmm. even into, into, um, when I was at school and in the early days of education, I was classified as someone who was quite headstrong, I would put right. in my, a slightly more benign interpretation, which is, I was always a bit restless, always trying to look for how we could do things better. And mm-hmm. I think that served me really, really well in my corporate career, because I I had a lot of responsibility at quite a young age, Um, had very senior positions in different industries. And as you say, Hiscox, the insurer I got uh, recruited into was a great company. Um, But I think ultimately, um, you reach a point people have different inflection points. But uh, for me, it was a recognition that I really did need to go and forge my own path, Mm -hmm. this restlessness, this desire to try and do something um, uh, you know, it, does, it has antecedents years past, but I think I got to a certain point. Maybe you could say it was a midlife crisis because I was, <laughs> I, was in, I was in my early forties, and uh, yeah, I could have stayed in his cox. They a great employer. It was a really rich environment. Uh, the salary was great. Um, there was upside, but I wanted to take that step. And I, I think it was also fueled by a deep, deep frustration of technology was not working well in insurance. So mm. those two things came together and um, converge. And then that's what spurred me on to with my co founder set up in Sander. And, you know, that that passion that drive has burnt bright, then it continues to burn bright, I have no, no look back moments. Um, I think there's some real, there's some real and we can maybe probe into it a bit further about what you know, deep level what motivates people to set up a business because it's not straightforward we are not normal people yeah that set up companies (laughs) you've got that experience yourself
0: Alex right yeah I've done it several times I mean this is the most um committed I've probably been um I think I think the the midlife crisis I was really smiling when you're saying that because I was thinking I turned 40 last year no I didn't I turned 41 last year (laughs) so you lose track don't you it hits 40 it becomes an irrelevance but um it was that time to go for me, it felt like now or never. It's like, mm. I'm really going to build this company mm. and accelerate on, and, and that's, you know, thankfully what we're doing here with FinPro. But um, I think there was an obvious problem to solve. I found my comfort zone in terms of kind of where I wanted to play, which is insurance and tech then, space, and then that was the right but timing. If I may, I mean, look sure. at what
1: you're doing at FinPro. I mean, this is not a normal positioning in the market that you're in. Mm. You know, you've, you've occupied, and very well, I must say, you've occupied a space around podcast, sharing content, getting interesting interviews. And so you've put a particular different angle on your business and that's, that's, you know, whenever you're setting up a company and you're driven by something to do that, you need to bring something different, a little bit unique, and then you need to drive it as best you can and have the belief that that will succeed. And that was very much the same for us. Um, You know, that belief that you will succeed is at times, and this is why I think the people that do start companies are not normal because, some of that belief is not going to be based on uh, actual data. No. Because it doesn't exist necessarily. How will you know your company is going to be successful? In your case, you know people need to hire new people. That's clear, but it's very competitive. In our case, there was a lot of software companies in the market selling software successfully. So how do you know that you're going to be successful? You have to bring something different. You have to have a different angle on it. And, And then the belief that that angle, that differentiation you bring will resonate with your ultimate buying market uh, and that belief the thing that fuels you for the many hours the many days the many weeks mm-hmm. the many months in our case many years to go from nothing to you know much more larger enterprises which is where we are now mm-hmm. uh, but you need to be fueled by an internal engine if you like and i believe that that engine has got to have be founded on this passion this belief as i talked about
0: yeah and I, I think the thing i would reflect on um is your tolerance for risk mm. um and and i think about that more probably than than anything I, I kind of my view is actually i i blindly assume it's going to work but then i worry about risk all the time i when it's going brilliantly is the time you know the team's celebrating we've d- we've done a load of projects it's completed and I, then i'm sitting in the corner of the room going well, it's all going to go wrong now, um, uh, but in a... Well, I think you make a really good point. Yeah. Right? There's a juxtaposition mm.
1: between the optimism and confidence that you need to have, which I think is belief isn't, you know, that's part of belief, is, is knowing that, having this sense that you'll be successful. And the juxtaposition is, of course, you need to have, well, I think, a healthy day, a dose of paranoia, mm. which is what happens if mm-hmm. it doesn't work? Because, you know, in setting up a company, as any founder out there will know, you are living in the early days, you're living, breathing hand to mouth and things can hit you and and the business can skew sideways quite dramatically. And you're, you know, it's your thing that you've created and you have put the weeks, the months, the years into it. Sure. And so I think that, I think you summarise it well, That there's a a juxtaposition between the confidence and optimism and the paranoia. And I I share that. I mean, Mm. you know, it's, um, probably Only in the last few years that I sleep peacefully through the night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As we've scaled, when, when, when people ask me what kept me awake, there was a lot of things to keep me awake. Sure. Uh, but I think ultimately, your business, our business, and I think certainly for insurance, it needs, and I think you've done a podcast on this separately, it needs startup companies and sure techs because I absolutely firmly have the opinion that, that incumbents um, don't face the same. Pressures and opportunities to innovate as, as insure techs do. Mm. And I think that's where you get this, you know, the, under extreme pressure, you form diamonds. Mm-hmm. I believe that a lot of insure techs are diamonds. Not all of them will be. Unfortunately, some of them will fail, as we've seen in recent months here sure. in the UK and in the US. Um, but I think, you know, the, the industry needs us because. Mm. Those, those slightly strange people like us Alex <laughs> who set these I'll companies up yep. and have got the belief, uh, you know, bring something to the market as you do and as I do that I think is needed. And, and as we've seen that as we've scaled, um, you know, we've had that differentiation and people embrace it and mm. uh, and it brings value to them. And, and that's the key bit to unlock.
0: We were talking about R&D and that's just kind of made my thought process. I, I've kind of got to this realisation, not realisation, this is my opinion, mm. but my opinion is that First, the insurance industry as a whole just needs to treat InsurTech like externalized R and D. It's it, yeah. that's how I would treat it. Yeah. I think it's a sensible thing to do. Yeah. Um, the scale of these organisations, carriers, or even like large brokers, m- means that innovation is almost impossible at scale um, because you can't have 100% focus. Mm. You can't have 100% mm. time. But I think more importantly, I make a sort of wider observation, um, and I won't get political, but it's tempting um, that publicly traded companies are also almost impossible to innovate within unless it's at the core of their function. Mm. So if you're Google, that makes it a little bit easier. If you're a a massive carrier in a regulated market, justifying some huge expense, which is a company-wide expense to innovate around systems, Mm. whether you should or not is a different question as well, because you you should probably spend your time being a good insurer, but your shareholders are not voting for that. So this is why I think this unique opposition, uh, unique positioning of pri- privately owned companies or certainly yeah. venture backed companies or even PE backed companies in that kind of I- ability to kind of move quickly and innovate I- I- is crucial and impossible in public market companies.
1: I think that's a really good point. There are there are some fundamental structural differences, I think, mm. between a large carrier, which is, you know, again, antecedents from decades ago, where it's uh, it, it may have been a, a very uh, analogue Type company, uh, it's built a brand. It's got millions of consumers as its as its market. Um, it's trusted. Um, it delivers a great service. But its antecedents are going to come from you know eons back, mm-hmm. and and it takes time to change process, and it takes even more time uh, to change technology. So and then their core business, to your point, is is pricing risk, mm-hmm. uh, and then obviously settling claims when claims happen. Um, and that core business does not lend itself to being highly innovative and, and highly driven to adopt some, let's say, some different practices when you've come from many, many decades back. So I think I think fundamentally carriers core business is essential. They do it really, really well, otherwise they wouldn't be in business. Mm. But innovating in technology is very different. And then to add to that, when you're under the environment of a founder, you know, with bootstrapping or being backed, I would say it's it's actually equally uh, demanding, but you know you have no option but to be successful sure. and your core business as you say is the technology. Yeah. And, and uh, having been a CIO in multiple industries as well as with Hiscox, I would, I would argue all day long with any uh, CIO from any carrier to argue that they will be able to build technology as well as a startup can. Mm-hmm. I think what they should be looking to do and what I was looking to do when I was a CIO and I would say to them is be an assembler, Yeah. right? So mm-hmm. Be an orchestrator, leverage the technology that's around you um, in modern technology like ours and others and be the orchestrator, be the assembler where you're combining those technology components to service the different market needs that you will have because depending on the business you're in, you could be going direct to the consumer or you could be going direct, you know, you could be going via broker for commercial lines, not admitted, admitted in the US, but be the orchestrator of the technology that's around. Don't try and be a builder. Now, there might be some little bits of build element in doing the assembly, mm-hmm. but in principle, you're not a builder of technology, you're an assembler mm-hmm. or orchestrator of it. And we say that whether it's to the NGAs that we work with and we are their core system, we are their system of record, or we say it to the larger, the larger carriers who are trying, as you say, to innovate, mm-hmm. and they're looking at different slices of their company and how can we take them off and make them more digital, I would say exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to be thinking about that role where you're sitting on top of technology capabilities, because as you know in your business, you know there's lots of components to make businesses successful, and technology is a key one, but it's it's one of many facets. And mm. so, assembling and orchestration applies in other areas as well. I mean, and process and people and uh, brand management, etc.
0: I think that's when we. I think that's the entrepreneur's journey as well. Is that you? I think what it's done for me is it's given me a very simplistic view of what businesses are, mm. in that. I will, if we take that example, I am never going to be the best marketer, the best finance person, best operations person. <laughs> in fact, I'm, I'm a, it's very limited to kind of where my, where my, my skills lie. And, and I think that's a good realization. Businesses should be the same mm. in in that you're a carrier. You're very good at that. Yep. Do that. That's your USP is your underwriting kind of view. Now when we move into the world of kind of algorithmic trading, yep. your algo. Um, If you look at if you take the algorithm view, look at banking, banking doesn't build technology, they might build different algorithms, but Mm. they use similar technology, because they know that's where the kind of war is won. And Mm. I think for a long time, carriers are kind of trying to compete. And also, just from a talent perspective, because we're a talent business, if you look at who sits in an insurance business, most of the talent in those teams is actually about repairing and fixing and meshing um, components together. It's not R and D, cutting edge engineers, and that's not a discredit. It's just a different skill set. Um, I knew we'd do this, Tim. We've got we've got a large portion of the business into the uh, the, the the podcast, and we've not talked about any of the questions that we've uh, had signed off I don't by mind. your team. I don't, so I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very happy to
1: shoot the, shoot the breeze. I think maybe uh, um, you know we the audience will be your guidance on whether we got that right or not. But yeah, so I, I think I think you know, building on your point, if we can before we want to sure, go back, no, no, no. Um, I think the other really interesting thing, because I've been around um, and seen some of the big technology shifts over mm. the last 10, 20 years, is the great news for the industry. So we can, we can say, stick to your knitting kind of thing, stick to your core competencies, as mm-hmm. Gary Hamill would have said in his book, and, and don't try and build technology, be the orchestrator. But the great news is, of course, the technology is so much more accessible, prevalent, and it's far more democratised mm-hmm. than it was 10 years ago so that you can be the assembler and you don't really have to have as many deep, deep domain skills as you used to. So mm-hmm. you know, the whole concept that Microsoft came up with uh, a few years back around citizen developer was this whole point around making the technology accessible, giving it to people that know how to write the risks, know how to leverage other bits of ML and other parts of AI to, to create a risk assessment process that no one else has, but give them the tooling to do that, don't try and build the tooling, leverage it, orchestrate it, assemble it, mm. um, and that democratization trend. I think we're seeing everywhere in every form of technology, and you know Microsoft and others have committed to that, uh, and that's exactly what we anticipated. And one of our theses was when we were designing in standard was when I was at Hiscox. They did retail, they did specialty, they did even Noise of London, <laughs> um, insurance, space, satellites. How do you provide a single technology that can answer to all of those you know, with all the distribution, different rate? You couldn't. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd managed it. I'd mm-hmm. seen it. I've been in other industries and faced similar problems. So you have to democratize the technology to put it in the hands of the experts. Sure. And you'll find that in your business, right? You of You leverage bits of technology and it's very easy to use and it provides the, the value to you quite instantly. And if it's SaaS based, you only pay for what you use principally. And if it's no good, you switch it off sure now i know at scale corporate systems you can't switch them off uh, and that's an, another issue that maybe we'll get time for you can invite me to back on another podcast we'll talk about that about you know getting rid of the legacy but i think it's 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 great time for for more companies to embrace modern technologies and to leverage it for real value for their customers mm.
0: So I, I think it's the best time to be where we're doing what we're doing. I think so, and 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 um, yeah, I'm going to end up ripping this up and throwing it away. We'll, we'll come back and do this one one time um, <laughs> because I think you may, you raise a really important point that we don't talk about enough. You know, you're talking about you've got fundamental, in some places, core platform technology that you that you're mm. offering to the insurance market. You've got a unique domain experience that if if you, you were, you're selling to you or, or, or and your colleagues, so. Yeah how does one turn off a legacy system, mm. go on to a kind of modern system? Because yep. surely that is the prevention of anyone doing that. It's not because, you know, someone said, made a really good point on this um, podcast, and I apologize to whoever it was, and said, the people that know what's wrong and what's bad about insurance technology are the people working within it. It's, yes. it's not like, yes. you can't approach them like they're naively no, they, pretending it's the yep. best tech. So how does one make that shift and and, yeah, realistically. Well, how does I think happen? that's a
1: really that's a really good question to to ask. And I, I, I've got a few opinions and I'd be really interested in the opinions of your audience. But let me let, let me share a couple of perspectives to back up my, my opinions on this. Mm. So having having been in industry for twenty years before um, uh, I, I co founded Instanda, it gave me a really deep insight into the mechanics of how companies work. Uh, and I work for medium size and very large scale. Um, you know FTSE 100 companies here in the UK with global footprints Mm. and I was fortunate enough including Hiscock to be at a very senior level in some cases at board level and I so I got to see what the time I thought were you know executives who were who were being a little bit more um, cautious and risk averse than say I was as a as a 30 40 something and I think one (laughs) has to recognize there is a deep-rooted natural psychology of how boards make decisions, and I've seen it in multiple industries, multiple industries, and it's part of the board's remit. Their job is to represent um, and be the stewards for the investors, the owners of the company, and and in that stewardship, they have to follow good governance. And their mandate is to be looking at risk management and, and mitigation of risk. Right. So it's it's that is the thing that's you know dominated. Uh, um, companies for many years and it will continue to be so mm. but when they're looking at and let's take technology as one of the slivers of success for any company when they're looking at technology and technology strategy and where they should go next their natural predisposition will be to say well let's try something familiar yeah let's try something that's proven let's try something that's been around for 20 years and of course the ch- that's a sensible strategy at one level but on another level what's happened in the last 20 years is that we've gone from analog, as we've mentioned before, to fully digital, where consumers have very, very different expectations of how they want to interact. Mm. Um, and, and they want things to be frictionless and, and personalised. And so whatever our technology was designed and built 20 years ago or more will have been built with blinkers on around how this world was going to operate. They wouldn't have anticipated it. Mm. So you've got this bored psychology which will naturally lean into and lend itself to, to technology that's been designed a long time ago. That's not as flexible and nowhere near as relevant for today's retail type environment, right? Mm. So there you've got, then you've got that challenge and then you have the insure tech community, as I said, which is exceptionally value for, valuable for insurance. However, not many of them have succeeded or scaled to a point where a board of a large company could look at and say, this is a this is a new modern company that I can trust and believe in. Mm. There are very few companies that have kind of broken through if you like in, into a into that layer of being confident um, partners. And so where we find ourselves and, and there's one or two companies like us is we have broken through the layer for some big companies, not for the tier ones. Sure. Um, but it's an exact it's not a process that you can fast track. I don't believe it's about you know, growing company like ours, we're, you know, we're like a 180, 190 people. Now we'll probably double that over the next 18 months, double again. It's probably not until we're about a thousand people or more mm-hmm. that a tier one would start to look at us and say, okay, we might give them a shot compared to the, to the incumbents mm-hmm. um, who are the ones that are designed 20, 25 years ago. Sure. Um, and so this, this challenge, I think is, is multidimensional. Um, But I think, you know, the board, the board psychology is a big factor for the bigger companies Mm. and I don't blame them for it. I just we have to recognize it. We have to be open. And so then in answer to your question, it was a little bit longer answer. But but getting rid of legacy and getting rid of core, you you know, if when I was there as a CIO and what I would be advocating now is you take it in parts. Mm. The old world of rip out and replace is too risky, too expensive. It would take too long. Um, and there are some there's some aspects that are just complicated for anybody, whether you're modern tech or old tech, but I would take it in slices. Mm. And there are some companies now in the UK, that um, there's one big one, I think um, that has started to renew policies on the modern tech platform. And that's their way of getting off. So slowly renewing as you go. Yeah, yeah. Which is one option you could take.
0: Yeah, I've, I've seen that. And there's, there's a few things I'm there. Um, firstly, i am pick there. Firstly, I'll go back to the board mentality. I thought it was a really interesting point that, you know, they're stewards of the risk of the business and I'm not risk insurance sense, but just, you know, risk of the future of the business. But then one slice that gets ignored is that not innovating. Mm. And I think, I think that the world's kind of waking up to that now. Yeah. I think because we've seen such you know hugely successful businesses, you know, the Nokias of this world, the blockbusters yeah. that, that are, you know, knockers still around ultimately blockbusters that ultimately yeah. don't exist. Yeah. You know, the Kodak moment that we always talk about. Um, innovation and not innovating has a huge price and a huge risk. I think that's kind of creeping into the boardroom, which is a positive thing. Um, Not because I want them to not sleep at night, but I want them to be thinking about innovation in a way that they need to. Um, And then that kind of, that new thinking of saying, right, why don't we look at net new business and put net new business on a new platform? And and that's something that I've been talking about and advocating for a long Mm. time. And And I'm surprised more businesses haven't, gone, okay, we know we almost have to ring fence this legacy mm. business, but we can create, whether it's a new vehicle or yeah. a parallel vehicle, or even if it's just exactly the same, as you said, mm. it seems a smart way to go. But then obviously that presents a challenge for businesses like yours in that we're saying that the road to success is, is long, it's expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of leads itself through 360 to saying the insurance industry as a whole kind of collaboratively needs to support businesses aren't yours. Because where do we get that transition point? <laughs> <laughs> do uh, we so wait for the point of failure? Um, <laughs> well, there's a,
1: there's, a, there's a law of, there's a Darwinism effect right yeah. of companies starting up, cool. which is that if they have great product market fit, and they're bringing value, they, most of the time, depending on management, depending on timing, they should succeed, mm-hmm. right? Um, what I would say is it is it is a long, hard road. I don't think it makes any difference, particularly whether you're in the US or UK. the US, it's easier to access capital earlier mm-hmm. than it is in the UK. Um, but I think there's still the same attributes of success will hold. What's interesting for me is having been on this journey, and you, as you say, as we can share the, 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 <laughs> the difficulties of doing this kind of thing for several years, is that we we are starting to reach an inflection point where now having been... Uh, through the growth trajectory that we've been through, and having raised the, the money that we have, the bigger corporates are now finally starting to look at us, and maybe it's it's a bit of a convergence between pressure on them to innovate, concerns around not being able to leverage other technologies like AI and ML, mm-hmm. because their core systems aren't designed for it, et cetera. And so how do, they, how do they access into this this modern technology? But even I would say that for us, we've had to get to a certain scale presence and size for the for the larger companies to get past those initial psychological barriers. Sure. 12, 18 months ago, we weren't having anywhere near the same kind of strategic qualitative conversations that we are now with a number of much bigger carriers. Mm. And I think that's just symptomatic of the journey that we've been on and the scale that we've reached, mm. which I'm really pleased about, but I'm equally, I'm a bit frustrated that maybe those conversations could have started earlier. Sure, We could have added more value to these companies. They could have had more benefit. But it's, as I said, there's some of that psychology about how big are you and are you credible and reliable?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it really resonates with me. I mean, going back to your conversation about, when we were talking about Hydro and struggles, and, you know, we used to, when I first started working in search and, you know, I, st- I started in contingent recruitment and then I moved into search and, and well, that's a difficult journey in itself because you mm-hmm. have to, there's a new, new way of working, there's yeah. a new kind of level of, of care required. But you know, we were a scrappy startup search firm, I was like employee number 25. And and we'd go in the room and, and, and we'd pitch and we'd do well, and, and they'd go, we like what you've got to say. But essentially we'd always go, no one ever gets fired for hiring mm. Hydrix or call yep. Ferry or yeah. you know, and, and that's completely true at that level. Um, and then echoing your point, we actually just came back from. Um, Uh, the conference, New York conference, um, ITI. And we'd said it was really interesting in in that this is probably three years in its kind of current form as FinPro. The conversations we're having at the last conference were, we were being sought out. We were being sought out by slightly bigger players at later stage in SureTechs for slightly more significant roles. And you know, a lot of our partners in the past were seed, Seed Series A and we were their first hire and we loved working with them. And it was very reciprocal because we were very early, they were very early and we're all in it together. Now there's just a little bit more meat on the bone and there's a, of course, there's a little bit of a stack of evidence to say that we can do this. And, and like, like yourselves, there's a stack of evidence that just accumulates over time that pushes over. And then you start to have those conversations, but you've got to kind of see it out and, um, I wanted to talk about, but well, can I build on please. that point if no I may rubbery. as
1: well, I suspect, and you can challenge me back if I'm not, this isn't, you know, this is this hunch, but I think you get sought out, I would suggest by those companies that see you and what you do and the podcast as really quite forward thinking, you're really immersed in the industry, you've got an opinion, mm-hmm. you're bringing in people to talk to them about their opinions, and they would value that Form of it, what I would call indirect expertise mm-hmm. is not direct for I need how I can hire a candidate, um, but it's it's a differentiator as I said earlier mm-hmm. between around you and and some of the other search firms, and so they will seek you out. But the companies that seek you out, right? I would suggest are probably slightly more progressive, mm-hmm. and what you're doing resonates with them, and and that's the same for us. So, you know, our journey has been with um, you know if I go four or five years back, we were working with. Much smaller organizations, the startups, the in MGAs that we're trying to get going, and and we would be very empathetic because we don't understand what they were trying to achieve. Because a number of us are former insurance executives, um, but also we could empathize from the fact We were building a business like they were. Sure. And so there's a very um, you know uh, happy conversation that you can have. As we've grown, we still see that theme thematically coming. We will not necessarily be approached by very conservative carriers will mm-hmm. will be approached by those that are really trying to do something different really want to tackle their their cost base really want to engage in a more personalized offering to the market and so i think you end up attracting from the market some of those things that you're trying to differentiate yourself around and what you represent and you can only represent yourself in a certain way you can't be all things to all people yeah right yeah yeah so yeah. you have to again back to the beginning of what do you find your business what you're founding your business on what's the purpose and what are you driving towards? That I believe, if you stay true to it, you 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 know you really believe it as you have to as a founder, then that will resonate and that will create your brand and positioning in the market and it, that mm. will attract certain kinds of people that it, that resonates with. Mm. It's not gonna be everyone. And, and so I'm really, really feel privileged that we end up working with probably the most progressive segments of the insurance industry, whether it's the segment of the large carrier who wants to do something really difficult and uh, different, or the MGA that's 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 trying to get going? And I, I love that, yeah, because then we get to see the very best, and I think, of insurance.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with you, and and um I mean, obviously I would. It's, it's sort of, but I think um it took me a long time, and this I think this is a maturity of of self, maturity of business, to realise that one you can't be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. Secondly, there's nothing. Good about that either, because then you're not tend to be offering nothing. Um, But I felt very welcome in the world of insuretech in a way that I never quite did in insurance. Insurance is a very welcoming place. I had lots of friends in insurance. I worked in insurance for, for, I mean, 17 years now. Mm. But that kind of innovator, Mm. I think I started to look around the room, and I think it's this entrepreneurial thing. I went oh, these people think a little bit closer to how I think, yes. and and that, that that's bad because I have to be careful that I'm going. Oh, this is groupthink. This is great. But just found we found our home with these people. I think we shared values about kind of what was important and just trying to do things different. You know, there's a value in trying to do things. When I started a podcast, I didn't think I'd be sitting on a yeah 160 episodes in sitting on a, a sofa. Where I was, in my room during lockdown and um barely had any lighting i think yeah, but you, were prepared, you were prepared to take
1: the, the step and to try it 100 I, and i think and, there's and back it and you look how successful you've
0: been yeah and i and i think i think that's it's just a good analogy for for uh, i want to tell you a story actually about bringing your whole self to work because it's kind of plays into that that i used to sort of pretend to play golf Hmm. I do play golf. I just play it very badly. Well, don't we all? No, exactly. Like, I think most people most do. Most people it do But I'd never forget. I was I was pitching for a search from a, a very established, very traditional reinsurance yeah. business. It was going very well. We'd given them nod. We'd done some work with them before. We thought we'd win it. And this is my, in my previous guys. Then we sort of broke out from the kind of work conversation into kind of pastimes. And and you know, I said many times, I trained as an actor, and I, I like to do kind of theatre. And I would won a part in a play been talking about golf been talking about how much how much this of reassurance guy went and played golf all the time and then as soon as I, I said I was in a play got very serious and was like are you gonna have any time to commit to this 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 assignment I thought you wouldn't ask me that if I was saying I'm a semi-professional golfer but as soon as it was this kind of slightly out of the ordinary hobby which is not that unusual a hobby, but but it was like, oh, you're gonna have enough time for it. So it was really interesting because there's this clash of cultures there, um, and that always resonates with me. About one, you've got to find your tribe, but so yes. also it, it, it can be very guilty in the insurance of going. Everyone's a bit identical if you're mm. not careful. You know, everyone goes to the seventh, everyone plays golf, everyone goes to certain trips and others. Well, not. that's what
1: I mean. At the beginning I mean, about being a, a founder is you will be thinking differently because mm. otherwise you're not bringing anything to market that's going to be of interest because it's same-same. Mm. Um, but in thinking differently, you have to embrace a, a, a kind of a diversity and be prepared for ambiguity, sure. right? Because whenever you're trying something new and different, as I said earlier, it's not guaranteed it will succeed. You have to have the optimism and confidence that it will, but but there's an ambiguity with what you're doing because it, you know you, there's inflection points about whether it'll be successful or not. And I think again, you know, psychology of um, very successful companies in insurance so far, risk management being conservative, is that ambiguity is not something that they would be embracing. But we're in a world now, and we don't need to look very far, do we? Whether it ranges from, you know, the rise of fake news, whether it ri- whether you look at the, the the deep impact in which AI is going to be uh, in, impacting us all on video, on text, on voice, and and so on. we're in a world of a lot more uncertainty and a lot more, um, less predictable. And therefore if there was now a time to be embracing a bit more ambiguity and doing things differently, again, I would say it's now. So Mm -hmm. as the, you know, the founders amongst the the insurance industry, I think the timing for them that are successful is really good because I think most executives on any board will be looking at the challenges in front of them and they do look different. They do look different to how they looked five or 10 years ago. Mm. Um, now, if they come if they come to the party and want to work with innovative companies like yourselves, like us, um, that's great. If they don't, then again, my thesis on that is they will not be a winner in the medium term. They just no. won't.
0: No, I completely agree. Um, I wanted to move on to um, the question of he had a pretty significant raise mm. um, about a year ago. Um, was it was Series B? I think was that.
1: No, it's um, it was. A serious B, but it was just a raise. Just a raise. It was a raise that we, uh, a raise to the point where we don't need to raise again.
0: Fine. I mean, I, I was just having to look a conversation. That's
1: quite, that's quite fundamental because I think, you know, looking at the, uh, again, part of the, the structural model around how to ensure techs get, grow, then they, uh, many of them have been living on going from one thumb raise to the next yeah. within 18 months, 24 months. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of them have hit the buffers as capital markets have retreated and they focused on you know, the more fundamentals of business around profitability and cash flow. Mm. Whereas we set ourselves up with those fundamentals in mind so our raise was done with Tosca who I'm absolutely delighted about as a partner and we those fundamentals of profitability and cash were built in, so it was a raise so that, old-fashioned. <laughs> <I know. laughs> it was a raise that we did, yeah. uh, and we didn't have to do another. We don't have to do another raise again.
0: That is important to draw that distinction. Yeah, um, it is. Funny enough, I think those the rounds are quite interesting because I've was, I was just talking to a founder just before you, yeah. turned, you turned up, and I was going, "Is it a seed?" He was like, oh, "I don't know, Alex. It's just the amount of money I need to sort of make the business get to where but I need to, to, the to go." To that stage, right? Um, yes. But yeah. but do you think that? One, do you think this round around round thing is predominantly an American preoccupation, because it tends to be how businesses are grown mm. because it's a slightly different funding environment, certainly much earlier stage funding environment. Um, and then double part of the question, everyone I speak to that has that viewpoint and said, well, I always thought about these fundamentals before is either a serial entrepreneur or bootstrap their own company. I think everyone should bootstrap, even if it's for a
1: Yes. I agree. I know
0: that's very difficult to do in certain instances, but I'm surely you can bootstrap to a point, even if it's to get some semblance yeah, I mean, of we, pieces of we
1: software. We've bootstrapped for five years. Yeah, uh, we're a bit unusual in that respect, but I think we were driven back to my earlier points around um, an absolute fundamental belief in what we were doing, and mm. if we weren't going to back ourselves with our own, not just sweat capital but actual personal. I mean, mm. we weren't wealthy individuals. Um, you know, relatively modest by. Um, you know, uh, general standards, but we were prepared to put our houses on the line, mm-hmm. um, and and raise capital on the back of you know if, if it didn't succeed, we would have lost our homes. Sure. And that that if you're not in the position where you're prepared to back absolutely everything in, into the into the endeavor, then how can you ask any external finance provider to do the same? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know it's corporate money, let's say, and they have their LPS, and the money will be distant, but i no, I'm absolutely in agreement with you. I think if you're not prepared to back yourself emotionally and financially, then really you've got to think more seriously about what your idea is.
0: Mm. I think the other thing is you just, you, you get the scars, you make the mistakes and those mistakes really cost. And, um, you no, know, I'm very, <laughs> an anecdotal story I will tell is I was talking to a VC, quite a prominent one and they were talking about someone that had just raised money and they went, Oh great. They raised a load of money last time. They lost a load of money um and the story on the pitch and they sat in on the pitch and they said the pitch was oh we've learned a load of lessons um good and and i don't want to demonize people for trying and failing because that just happens and sometimes mm-hmm. you don't succeed in business and you fail and that happens mm-hmm. more often than not but it was kind of the conversation we were having was like how deep do you learn those lessons really if mm-hmm. it doesn't cost you anything mm-hmm. because it really doesn't cost you anything so i think i think there's a danger but i think that danger is not passed entirely but the funding environment is different now, um, and so therefore I kind of think there's a there's a positive in that that good fundamentals are back in fashion again. Um, well,
1: that's that's why we did our raise. Mm. Um, we got we we raised we had a term sheet before the Tech collapse, and we completed our raise after the insuretech collapse. Sure. And Tosca um, were good to their word on on the term sheet, which was issued pre mm. pre collapse. And so we, the relationship with ourselves and Tosca is a very strong one, but they acted with the utmost integrity. But I think they were able to act with integrity because the fundamentals of our business were sound and were actually directionally exactly what is now going to play out, what is now playing out when, when startups are trying to go for um, fundraising now. Mm. I think what happened, unfortunately, for a number of founders, they got carried away on the wave of you can have a multiple of ARR, of, you know, 15, 20, 25 times or beyond, and just keep raising money for an 18, 20 more month window. And it will all come good at some point in the future. Sure. In Never Neverland. Yeah. And we didn't <laughs> think about it that way because back to your point, we, we bootstrapped and then we knew how much we needed. We had a period of time where we needed some funding and then we would be, um, washing our own face as a business, which mm. is exactly the plan. Mm. And so I, you know, I think those fundamentals, they should never have gone away but I think the industry both the BC industry and the, the insure tech side lost sight of it and they shouldn't have done.
0: sure um, I'll get to finish on one question because otherwise we're going to uh, dramatically. Because we're in person, we actually have got a person giving us the. uh, We're running out of time. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, but I did want to ask you about expansion because I think the US is is the obvious place to go, um, and we one would expect you to go there. But you've also expanding into Japan as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. So, um, is that driven by sort of inbound inquiries to the business, or strategically be good to explore kind of why specifically that territory next?
1: Yeah, that's a good. Well, um, briefly, we, we don't, haven't just looked across the pond so to mm. speak at the US and it's obviously the market size of the US is much bigger than the UK, it's about equivalent to Europe. We've, we've been in the US for <clears throat> six years now, yeah. we've just done it very slowly and very quietly and again in this, this model of funding it, um, backing ourselves in a modest way. Um, so we do understand the US market, we see there's great opportunities for us there. We have uh, nearly 30 clients there now, so it's been built over a period of time. And we can see there's me- in, the, in the short to medium term, great opportunities for us. Um, Japan was different. We got invited into Japan by a, a partner that said, don't worry, we'll take care of everything. We, we just think the technology that you offer, there is nothing like it in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't seen anything else that's available that democratizes technology, and allows this agility to innovate. Um, so we'll bring you into the market because it wasn't a market that we identified as, as the most, um, the one that we could get a a good return on over a medium period of time. So we, um, we allowed that partner to take us in. And then unfortunately (laughs) we had, we won our first client and then there was an audit conflict with the partner. So they couldn't implement. So we ended up having to stand up a team to go and implement in Japan. And now um, a little bit of time later on, uh, we're still working with that partner. We have some other clients there and I think it's, it's a fascinating market. they do business in a very different way to the US and UK. Uh, there's lessons to be learned across all three core markets, um, but I think it's a longer, it's going to be a slower growth trajectory in Japan. But I think it's a very long term potential growth area for us. Yeah,
0: well, we've said it's a long term game, so um, it's kind of theme of the um, day. We we haven't covered hardly any of the questions, but I've really enjoyed that. There's such a big deep dive into entrepreneurship. It's been a pleasure the to why. Talk to you but well. thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Pleasure. Good to talk to you, Alex. Thanks